Morning, everybody. Well, uh, Happy New Year to you all. We are back. It is the beginning of a new year, <clears throat> which is exciting for a number of reasons. One, it's, um, there's that sense of newness and starting something fresh. I think today is a cool day, especially because we're sending this team today. And for me, it almost feels like we're setting the tone for the year, that we're going to begin our year by sending people into mission. I was reminded this morning that uh, whether you're leaving on the Tecate trip or you've already left and you're going, uh, we are all sent into mission. And maybe that's part of uh, this new year is that many of us will go to jobs, back to, our, uh, back to our jobs tomorrow. And that's just as much a mission field as Tecate is. And so it's exciting to think about that. It's exciting to think about uh, this, coming, uh, this coming year. Today we start a new series. We're going to be in this series for uh, the month of January. And similar to how we've done it in the past, uh, past couple of years is we're actually doing this series alongside other churches in and around the Spokane area. <clears throat> and we're calling it the IF series. And so uh, many different churches around Spokane are preaching very similar messages this morning. And uh, we're doing that again to, to kind of uh, put a stake in the, in the ground and say we are a unified church and we can speak about these things together. So uh, a, a cool thing to be a part of. So this morning is the IF series. And let me start by saying this. The word if, which is up on the screen behind us, is a very, very simple word, two letters, but I would say it's a wonderful world in our English language. Think about the word if for just a moment with me. It is filled with possibility and hope. It's a wonderful world, uh, word filled with possibility and hope. If is the way that I believe most dreams are started. Think about these sentences. If I could marry that girl. If we could just work a little bit harder. If I could get that job. If I could get time off. If we can save up just a little bit more money. If I try maybe just one more time. Fill in the blank to any one of those sentences, and you're bound to embark on a pretty cool journey. If, by its very nature, if the word by its very nature is filled with potential. Potential for new things, potential for adventure, potential for growth, potential for something exciting to happen. But what happens when you add the word then to a sentence that begins with if. How many people in college took a philosophy or logic class? Raise your hand. How many people then never took a second logic or philosophy class after that? That was me, so I took one kind of mandatory class or mandatory class that I had to take. Took one, and uh, I, it's just not my bag, so that was the only one I took. But I do remember a couple of things from, uh, from those classes. So if we look at this idea of if-then from that perspective, then you know that an if-then sentence is called a conditional statement, meaning that there is an antecedent and a consequent. If the antecedent, whatever that is, then the consequence, whatever that is. So here's an example. If I drop this pen, then it will fall to the floor. It's a causal relationship. We all know what that is. That's gravity. If I drop the pen, then it will fall 
to the floor. It's a conditional statement. And conditional statements assure certain outcomes. So adding then to if statements, I would argue, takes a little bit of the wonder and the potential away. They remove the mystery in if statements because they promise a certain outcome. We use conditional uh, statements often in our culture because I think we, we, think, we tend to think uh, pretty linearly in, in the way that we uh, work our way through life. We like to be very logical, and conditional statements are logical ways to think through the world. I think uh, I use conditional statements a lot in the way that I raise my kids. So if you have children, maybe some of these ring true to you. If you throw your Lego car across the room, then it will break. If you eat the rest of your dinner, then you can have a cookie. If you get out of your seat one more time, then you will go to a timeout. These are all things I've said in the last 48 hours. <laughs> Just the other day, we, uh, my youngest son, who's three years old, he has become very attached to a Costco bottle of fiber gummies. If you guys have seen these. I don't know why, but he loves this bottle of fiber gummies, and he's kind of figured out how to open the cap. No matter how tight I turn it, and it's still got that little me locking mechanism, I don't know if he has his older brothers open it for him, but he's figured out how to get that cap off, and he's carrying it around, and when we take it away, he throws this enormous fit, and I found myself saying this just the other day to Kempton, Kempton, if you eat one more fiber gummy, you will be very sorry. <laughs> You see, the truth of these conditional statements help my boys, they help us understand causal relationships. So what happens when conditional statements don't necessarily seem to be true? Think about these. These are a couple that I found in Scripture. Proverbs 22.6, if a child is trained up in the right way, even when he is old, he will not be turned away from it. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away. If you have faith like a grain of, uh, of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now certainly there is truth in these statements, but how do we interpret these things? How are we to understand these things? That is essentially what we're chasing after in this series studying what we think are some of the most critical if-then conditional statements in Scripture and looking at then the promises that God gives us through these statements. Let's pray as we lead into this, and then we'll jump into our first uh, conditional statement, if-statement for the series. So would you pray with me? God, we pray that you would bring to life your word this morning in our hearts and in our minds. God, as we, uh, as we read your scripture, as we wrestle with our own stuff and our own baggage as we sit here this morning, we trust that you are Lord over it all. We trust that you are our redeemer. God, that you can make sense of our world, that you can uh, make sense of our lives. We offer what we have to you we pray that you would lead us uh, into, the, into ways that honor and glorify you. Speak to us this morning through your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
If you want to and you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans 8, chapter 8. This is going to be the first, uh, the first statement, if statement, that we look at in the series. And here's what Romans 8, 31 and 32 says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? If we were back in that logic class, that uh, philosophy class, we would call this a casual and rhetorical conditional statement. Essentially saying, if God is for us, then who or what can be against us? It's one thing to think about the structure of a sentence, or of this sentence from that point of view, but an entirely different thing to think about the theology of this statement. To do that, I believe we need to be able to answer two questions. And here's the two questions. The first one being this. Do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe that God is for you? And the second being this. Who or what do you believe is against you? Who or what do you believe is against you? So let us start with that first question because I believe you can't really answer the second one until you have fully answered the first one. So let's look at this one first. Do you believe that God is for you? This is the reason that Paul writes what he does in chapter 8 of Romans. You see, verse 31 is the logical conclusion to the entirety of the chapter previous to it. Paul takes the entire chapter to lay out the argument that God is, in fact, for us. He says things like this in verse 1, There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Verse 2, what the law could not do, God did, sending his own son as an offering for sin. Verse 10, with Christ, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 15, we have not received a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption, with which we can cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 26, the spirit helps us in our weakness, in that the spirit intercedes on our behalf. In verse 28, God causes all things to work for the good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purposes. The whole of chapter 8 is a crescendo, a theological crescendo, building up to the point that, yes, indeed, God is for us. You see, how you understand God, how you believe God's character is, shapes the entirety of your life. How many people have seen the movie Bruce Almighty? Several of us, okay. So there's a scene in the beginning, and Bruce is uh, the main character, and he's really struggling in kind of his interpretation of life and his understanding of God and who God is. And he says this, he says uh, in the beginning, and, and I'm not quoting exactly, but essentially he says, God is like a mean kid with a magnifying glass standing over an anthill. That's Bruce's understanding view of God. Now certainly we've all had moments like this, moments where you think God is out to get you. 
But is this your pervading view of God? Is God a vengeful and spiteful God, looking for opportunities to make your life difficult? If this is your view, then it changes everything in how you understand the world. Everything how you understand your Christian faith. Now, to get to that point, it is a personal journey. There is nothing that I can do short of what Paul does in the beginning of chapter 8 to make you believe that, yes, indeed, God is for you. That's something that we all have to wrestle with individually to come to that place. You see, it takes faith to believe that God is for you. And you can point to the ways that he's been faithful, and you can read chapter 8, and it can reassure you, but ultimately it takes faith to believe that. It takes trust to read Romans 8 and know it in your heart to be true. If your view of God is like Bruce's view of God in the beginning of the movie, then let me challenge you to reread or read for the first time the Gospels, start to finish, to see what Jesus is really like. You see, Jesus, God in human flesh, is displayed as faithful and caring and gentle and loving and righteous and compassionate and present. His actions, his life, his death and resurrection were all for us. They were for me. They were for you. So that we could know and be in relationship with the one true God. If you read the Gospels, that is the God that you see. But you have to have faith to trust that. You have to have faith to believe that, yes, indeed, God is for you. That is the God that I have come to know. A God that when life is challenging and painful, he is there. That when loneliness creeps in, God is present. That when I am frightened, I can feel God fighting for me. That when I begin to question myself, I feel God work through me. That is the God I know, and that is the God that we can trust in, but you have to take that step of faith to believe it. When we can answer the question, yes, I believe that God is for us, yes, I believe that God is for me, then we can move to the second statement. That second statement being this, who do you believe is against you? Who or what do you believe is against you? Is it your current situation? Is it the system? Maybe your parents or the government. Maybe it's your own kids, your own mental health, your employer, the person you thought was your friend, the bank, your past. Maybe it's the church itself. Who or what do you believe is against you? But let me ask you this. What if any of these things are really against you? Because here's the truth, and we just stated this a moment ago, that God is bigger than all these things, and God is for us. And if we can agree to that, then nothing is against us. And I would contend that the real issue isn't those things out there, 
but it's our own fear. How many kids are in the audience this morning? None, really. Uh, like kids that can answer a question. <laughs> Somebody held up a baby in the back. <laughs> uh, very few. Okay, so we had some kids in the, uh, in the first service, and I threw out this question. Adults could not answer. And I threw out the question to the kids, what are things that you fear? What are some things that you fear? First one, little boy back here shot up his hand. And he said, I'm afraid of the dark. Another one sitting right next to him said, I'm afraid of monsters. The one sitting right next to him said, I'm afraid of ghosts. <laughs> you can kind of see the path we're going down here. Some, uh, a little boy over here, very, very mature little boy, kind of stepped out into the, uh, into the aisle, and he said, I'm afraid of falling in a dark, dark hole. <laughs> yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> afraid of uh, snakes and spiders and all these things. We, uh, my wife and I have three little boys. Our oldest, his name is Theron, and there's a picture of him up here. I took this picture last night. That's Theron. He's channeling risky business right there, if you've seen that movie. So Theron, this last summer, in the beginning of the summer, got stung by a bee. A life-altering, life-shattering moment for Theron. Got stung by a bee and spent the next two weeks of uh, June, you know, kind of beautiful, well, June in Spokane's really not that beautiful, frankly, but some beautiful weather. Spent the next two weeks inside, terrified to go outside. He would go outside, he would see a bee buzzing around. I mean, a bee is 14 yards from him. He'd see it and he'd run back inside, terrified that he might get stung by another bee. He was absolutely petrified of bees, so much so that he would not go outside. And so we would talk at night, and I'd get home from work and talk to him about, hey, did, were you able to go outside? And, no, I didn't. I tried to, but I was too scared. And my wife tried, and, you know, our other boys are playing outside all day long in the sprinkler and hanging out, and he's inside just glued to Legos and not, he doesn't want to go outside at all. Finally, after about two weeks, my wife coaxes him to, to going on a hike. And so they leave from our house, and they go on this hike, and he's outside for about a half an hour, Makes it back inside. They have, I mean, it's this big celebration that, uh, that Theron was able to go outside. And I got home from work later that day, and he comes running up to me, and he kind of looks at me, and uh, he's, he's not the tallest individual, and he kind of looks at me in these big eyes, and he says, Daddy, Daddy, I faced my fears today. <laughs> Great moment, just proud, proud father. The truth is that bees didn't keep Theron inside. His fear of bees kept him inside. It wasn't bees that kept him inside, but it was his own fear that kept him inside. I think many of us have spent our lives paralyzed by fear. Fear of failure, fear of commitment, fear of change, fear of weakness, of being alone, of trusting others, fear of not having it all together, fear of letting someone down, fear of hell, fear of security, fear of being vulnerable, fear of being wrong, so on and so forth. You see, it's not the bees that keep us inside. It's our fear that keeps us inside. I was reminded of a quote from a good friend of mine, Ryan Miller, who uh, used to be on staff here and went to plant a church 
up north, we were, um, he reminded me of this quote, and it's from season two of Breaking Bad. If any of you have seen, you don't have to say if you've seen this or not, you can just kind of nod with me, but uh, I'll set it up a little bit. Breaking Bad, um, uh, it's a TV show, it's actually done now, but this is in season two, and it's between a conversation of Walter White, who's the, the protagonist, main character in this TV show. He's a high school chemistry teacher turned meth kingpin in, uh, this, uh, in New Mexico. He's in conversation with Hank, who is his DEA brother-in-law, and his brother-in-law has no idea what Walter, what Walter White's doing, and Walter is talking about his recent lung cancer diagnosis, and he's in conversation with his brother-in-law, and his brother-in-law, again, has no idea what, uh, you know, Walter White's um, kind of the underbelly of, of Walter White, and he says this, Walter says this, I have spent my whole life scared, frightened of things that could happen, might happen, might not happen. Fifty years I've spent like that, finding myself awake at three in the morning. But you know what? Ever since my diagnosis, I sleep just fine. I came to realize it's fear that's the worst of it. That's the real enemy. Fear slowly kills the mind and soul by draining every last drop of our hope, belief, and joy. I'm convinced that the only thing that keeps us from God is our own fear. The only thing that can be against us is the fear that we let it. You see, our fear is what holds us back, and it holds us back because we give it space in our lives. We give it room to grow. We let it dictate the ways that we feel. We give it control over our actions and our thoughts. And too often we succumb to its evil ways. You see, our fear is the only thing that's against us. And it's only against us because we let it be. This is why I think scripture is riddled with language like, fear not and do not be afraid. God tells Gideon to not, uh, not to fear because that he would be with him. And the angel tells Mary and Joseph to have no fear. It's why Jesus instructs his disciples time and time again and, and teaches those who he heals and tells even synagogue leaders, do not fear. It's why Paul asserts in 2 Timothy chapter 1, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I found this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I believe it's, it's beautiful, and I'm actually going to quote a, a second portion of this in a little while. But this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about it. The Bible, the gospel, Christ, the church, the faith, all are one great battle cry against fear in the lives of human beings. Fear is somehow or another the arch enemy itself. It crouches in people's hearts. It hollows out their insides until the resistance and strength are spent and they suddenly break down. Fear secretly gnaws and eats away at all the ties that bind a person to God and to others. And when in a time of need that person reaches out for those ties and clings to them, they break and the individual sinks back into himself or herself, helpless and despairing while hell rejoices. 
You see, we can project our fears onto other people and the situations in our lives, in the church, in our jobs, and everything outside of ourselves, but we will never move closer to God until we break the chains around our hearts and our minds and trust that Christ can release us from our own fears. If we believe God is who he says he is, creator and sustainer of all things, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, then there is nothing that he does not have dominion over, and that includes our fear. The beauty of this verse, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Is Paul rhetorically asking, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Paul is saying, nothing is against us, because God is for us. That is the truth of the scripture. Nothing can be against us unless we let it be. And we less, unless we let our fear be against us. God speaks through Isaiah about his chosen people and he says this. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God, and I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This verse is especially poignant as we think about the things that we fear as a community, as a people of God. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at other if statements and how they shape our mission how they shape our community. But today we wrestle with this idea of what fear is it that holds us back from moving into that mission, from moving closer to God? Let me leave you with these last few statements because this morning we have a promise that we can rest in and here is the promise. God is for us. He is for me He is for you. He is for us. He will strengthen us. He will help us. He will uphold us. And we need not fear at all. Because God is for us. And we can trust in this. If this is the God that is for us, then truly nothing can be against us. I spent some time looking for a good way to end this morning, looking for a nice way to wrap all of this up. And I kept coming back again to this Bonhoeffer uh, quote. So this is the second part of that quote. And here's what I want you to do. I want you just to close your eyes for a moment. We're going to end, and I'm going to end by reading this as a prayer and a victory cry over all of us. Then we name the name of the one who makes the evil inside us recoil who makes fear and anxiety themselves tremble with fear and puts them to flight. We name the one who overcame fear and led it captive in the victory procession, who nailed it to the cross and committed it to oblivion. We name the one who was the shout of victory of humankind, redeemed from the fear of death, Jesus Christ, the crucified and living one. He alone is the Lord over fear. It knows him as its master. It gives way to him alone. So look to Christ when you are afraid. 
Think of Christ. Keep him before your eyes. Call upon Christ and pray to him. Believe that he is with you now, helping you. Then fear will grow pale and fade away, and you will be free through your faith in our strong and living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.